Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diadora, the brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg, currently worn by world number 28, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. See them at Diadora.com. Happy New Year, everybody. We have a special show for you today. Today's guest was born and raised in Lee-on-Sea, Essex, England. And in 1978, reached his career high of 21 in the world. He was England's Davis Cup captain from 2006 to 2010. And he's been a broadcaster for HBO's Wimbledon coverage and the BBC. And he now has an autobiography titled Dear John on the Shelves. We talked about it all. John Lloyd is today's guest. Now, you're in West Palm. I'm in West Palm Beach. I had a two-hour uh, doubles match, a little lesson, two-hour doubles lesson with two ladies and one of the director of tennis there. So we had a little two-hour game. And where was that? That was at the Breakers in Palm Beach. I'm, I'm, I'm the part-time pro there. The, are you the at-large uh, pro in residence? Is that what they call you? But they call it, I mean, a part-time pro. They don't call it touring pro anymore. That, that name has sort of gone out. So I'm uh, a, a part-time pro. So... Uh, I charge a lot more than all the others. And if someone is silly enough to pay for it, then I do it. If not, I don't do it. Gentlemen, you hear former world number 21 um, carried the torch for England for many, many years, uh, was the first British man to have reached a final of a major um, forever and ever since Fred Perry and was most famously say famously or infamously married to chris everett that is john lloyd my man um thank you very much for coming on the show my pleasure how is your tennis my tennis is actually not bad i've had two knee replacements one hip uh and the other hip is bone on bone but uh so pretty soon i'll be bionic uh but actually i play decently um for someone and my mobility is actually not bad considering i've got a lot of titanium in my body but uh, not bad at all I, I play i think actually fun enough my actual technical side of my game is better now than when i was a pro just because i've worked on it over the years with coaching other people so i think like for, for instance my forehand which was my weakest part of my game is now probably my best part of my game um so things have changed well, that's interesting, right? Tennis is so amazing that, you know, you're. The, I think everyone's relationship with it, whether you're elite or a club player, it ebbs and flows. And the fact that you're enjoying your tennis is interesting. No, no, I love it. I, I, I do a bit of coaching, as I say, at the breakers, but I also play, you know, doubles and hit with other people. And I, I, I normally play an hour and a half a day. Uh, and, you know, I get play against good players. So I'm not just standing there with a bucket of balls. I actually play the lesson and play out, play doubles. And I play with friends of mine who love it. And so I get a good, big kick out of it, to be honest. Now, are you tell the are you putting beatings on a lot of these guys? What kind of what kind of competitor are you? Well, I, you know, I, I do like to still win. Um, but sometimes I play what is called customer tennis, uh, which is a saying that you probably know about. Uh, where we play with people that um, <laughs> are a little bit clueless in terms of, uh, you know, that they don't realize that I could tattoo their forehead and put them in hospital <laughs> if I wanted to. 
uh, and I don't. And so they end up getting a lot more gains than they really deserve to. But they tell their friends, some of them, and they don't, they're a bit clueless. But it's a bit like, you know, actors and actresses who I've played with over the years, the same thing. They get, uh, they, they're a bit clueless. They're very intelligent people. Uh, some of them are business people that are, are leaders of, of the free world. And yet they can't see the difference between <laughs> Uh, being a 3-0 and an ex-pro. They don't get it. But anyway, it's kind of fun seeing their reactions. And when I hit a hard ball past them and they kind of look at me as if, why, how did you do that? Well, because I've hit a thousand balls and I've been on the tour for a thousand years, but they don't quite get it. I, I refer to it as business tennis, but I always just mm. try to, I guess it's different if you were, you know, elite you have to sometimes lay off. I just try to put the heat on everybody I play. <laughs> I love that. Well, yeah. If I did that, though, unfortunately, some of the people I played, I would put them in hospital. Let's move into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. This is where we talk about you know, the business of tennis, the hot-button topics of the day. Uh, do you keep your eye on British tennis significantly, or do you keep, and do you keep your eye on all tennis? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, because I do commentate for about a month, you know, over the uh, Wimbledon period. I do Queen's Club, the men's tournament, then I do the Wimbledon qualifying, and then I do the Wimbledon event. So I like to, you know, to keep, and I watch it on TV. And, and in terms of uh, British players, my nephew, Scott Lloyd, is the chief executive of the LTA. So he's the head man. So, you know, when I speak to him, and I, I call him quite regularly, I ask him about up and coming players and I don't see them very often because obviously I'm over here, but I sort of know some of the guys and some of the ladies. And so, yeah, I definitely have a keen interest in them. That's for sure. Um, how is, how are you feeling about British tennis at the moment? Well, I think, I think it's in a very healthy state. Uh, if you look at it, uh, there was always a panic, I think going on when you have someone like an Andy Murray, who you get once every a hundred years, if you're lucky, uh, who was a great player and well, still is, but uh, won three grand slams. And obviously, you look at that, and I'm sure everybody in Britain, to do with the tennis uh, uh, industry, was panicking, thinking, well, who the hell is going to replace him? Well, you can't really replace him, but we ended up out of the blue with, with a Grand Slam champion with, with Emma Raducanu, which was completely unexpected. Um, so that's almost sort of uh, filled the hole in to a certain extent, although she's a long way from being as good as Andy yet, but she has won a slam. And we've also got uh, an up-and-coming male player called Jack Draper, who I'm very high on, who uh, I, I believe by the end of this year will be top 20 minimum. Um, and I, I think he's uh, a potential slam winner in the, in, the, in the future. So we've got him. And then and, and people like Cam Norrie, who's been, uh, you know, he's knocking around the top 10 spot. Dan Evans is still playing well. Um, so, uh, and we've got, uh, you know, the world number one in doubles as well, their men's doubles. So I, I would say we're, we're doing pretty well. I think that it's a very interesting time. I was watching Harriet Dart compete the other night and she looked, yeah. she, she can play well, man. And they, she can play very well. And they were talking about what a, what a elite athlete she is. And I didn't realize that until I watched that broadcast of the United Cup. They said that her athleticism, her fitness is is something special. Yeah, no, she's uh, she's in great shape. She works hard, very athletic. Her mother, actually, is a good tennis player. She plays at Wimbledon. She's a Wimbledon member. Uh, so it's sort of all in the family, so to speak. And Harriet, uh, I think with her, it's been a little bit of a question of the mental side of her game. I think she was lacking a little bit of confidence. But she's. Uh, it's a funny thing about tennis. And one thing that you I've learned over the years is 
there's no age where you can say a person either makes it or doesn't make it. You can literally not get what tennis is really about at the elite level until you're in your late 20s. Some people pick it up when they're 17, 16, 17. Some, some don't. And Harriet Dart, to me, looks like someone, I mean, she's still young, but for a couple of years, she's been sort of flowering a bit. It looks now like she's realised what it takes to be a top player. So I'm expecting big things from her this year. Our show's an insider show. What's, you know, what's your nephew telling you about Emma right now? Uh, I think this year will be a better year than last year. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see the best of her for another couple of years. But I don't think that she's necessarily a one-hit wonder, which is not a bad thing to be. If you're a one-hit wonder and you've won a slam, uh, a lot of people would take that to the bank uh, before they even started their career. Uh, but I do think there's more to come from her because um, I don't know her, but I've talked to my nephew. I've talked to other coaches she has. And mentally, she's a very, very intelligent girl, uh, a woman, young woman, and she's smart on the court. And I think that eventually, I don't know how long it's going to take, but I think she'll become her own boss. And I think we're still there's still a lot more left from Emma's game. We 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 hear that the father is a disaster. That the that there's been um, a remarkable amount of change inside the camp. That she's gone from coach to coach to coach to coach to coach, and yeah. that it's all coming from the dad. Uh, can you confirm or deny that? Well, I think he has a, a very strong influence. You know, whenever they fired a coach, they they came up with this explanation, which of course. Emma fronted it, but I think a lot of that was coming, obviously, from the parents, particularly the father. And they said that basically they don't need anybody as, as sort of full time. They want someone where they can sort of like a sponge, soak up the information and then go on to the next. Well, I'm sorry to say that in tennis, that doesn't really work. Uh, you know, when you're a coach of someone, you've got to get the trust of that player. The player has to trust you. It's, it, a lot of it's to do with the the off-court, the emotional side, the the talking about match, the bearing all what's going on in your life so that the coach knows what to say and what not to say. You can't do that if you're getting rid of a coach every three months. So I think they've got that part seriously wrong. And you have not spoken with her. You do not know her. I do not know her, only from afar. I have ne never met her, um, um, even though a couple of her coaches were friends of mine, Nigel Sears, um, um, uh, you know, he's a very good friend of mine. He coached her at the start, did a very, very good role, a very good job. And then Flex, uh, uh, Andrew Richardson, who did a great job after she won the Open and then lost his job. Uh, that has to be one of the, the most amazing firings in the history of any sport, let alone tennis, that you fire a coach after you've just won a slam. And the excuse that the, the camp gave was that they felt now they needed someone with more Grand Slam experience. Well, they just fired Nigel Sears six months earlier, who's been around Grand Slam champions for the last 20 years. So that was a ridiculous excuse. Uh, and that was a nonsensical firing. And, I'm, I'm, and she's never really recovered from that yet. What has your um, observations been of the United Cup? I have enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed it a lot as well, actually, the tennis that I've seen. The, the problem I have is that I think the Davis Cup and and the, the Billie Jean King Cup, which used to be the Federation Cup. For me, it, they've lost what it was all about. They've lost, I, I'm not so sure that players these days have the passion to play for their countries as much as we did in the old days. And I'm not, you know, I know everyone always says, oh, they always hark back to the old days. If you're in my era, you think your era was the best and the next era thinks. 
But I do believe that in my era and maybe the one slightly after my era, um, the love of, of playing for your country was a lot more than it is now. Now, I think, unfortunately, it all comes down to dollar bills. And, and if, if the schedule, if it's the right time of the year, they'll play for it because the money is so great. But I'm not so sure the passion is there anymore in terms of playing for your country. So I do struggle with watching it a bit because for me, I almost feel like it's just another event. I tell you, man, you know, if, if they're, for me, I feel like if the Davis Cup is going to choke and the Fed Cup is sort of going to stay sort of insignificant, then these kind of mixed events are kind of interesting. Yes, it's fun because on the tour, you know, it can be a bit of a lonely world in a lot of ways. I know that it's a lot of money and there's this and that, but these days, particularly, there's entourages around. You don't get to mix in like they used to in the old days when the money wasn't around and you didn't have coaches and physiotherapists and dog walkers and nutritionists and all this kind of stuff, uh, which is coming now. And I think particularly for the women, the women, it's a, it's a lonely life being out there for the women because it's, uh, you know, when they lose matches, they don't hang out with the other women like the guys do a little bit more. I think socially it's a bit difficult. I think the the losses are, are, are more difficult for for the for the women players just because there's no one around to really sort of hang out with and talk about it because the women tend to be very uh, isolated. They they go their own way. They don't practice with each other. I'm talking. I'm generalising here because some do, but I'm talking about the majority. Um, and it's a lonely lonely existence in a lot of ways. Um, and so when you have these tournaments where the men and women are together, and you're and you're in a team. I think they, it's like harking back to when they were juniors, when you were growing up, and I think they get a great kick out of it. The tour looks healthier when everyone's together, doesn't it? It's just a great environment, and I think it's so different from when you're in individual tournaments when you, you're not in a Masters Series and the men are on their own and the women are on their own. It's just a healthier environment, exactly what you said, and I think the players just love it. Something tells me you don't miss a lot of tennis. Um how many screens do you watch when it's all when when the action starts? <laughs> well, I've only got uh, I've got two TVs in my 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 rented uh, furnished apartment here, so I don't have uh, the beauty of that. But these days, you can you know when you watch the tennis channel, they they normally flip in and out of matches, and then you've I've got my iPad, so I I, I keep a, a, an idea. I have to try and keep keep my knowledge up because you know I do Queens and I do Wimbledon qualifying, and a lot of times you have players in there that are not sort of mainline draw players that you see week in and week out. And I suddenly look at them and I've got to commentate on them. And firstly, it's difficult enough pronouncing their names. That's my number one problem. And then number two, I've never seen them play because the events I go to or what I see on TV, a lot of times they're not featured. So anytime I get a chance to see them in these tournaments where they, like as an example, the Delray Beach tournament, which tends to have slightly lower rankings, then I go along and watch and try and familiarize myself with the players, so I know what. And the I'm tennis is about. just so good too. I, it, so, so good. good. It's so it's good. amazing. It's amazing to see um, every round of every tournament, isn't it? It's like an incredible product, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's a great product, and you know, people always talk about the you know the top guys here, and obviously the the greats. Obviously, Federer not around now, uh, uh, but when you had the the Fab Three, and if you add Andy Murray and Vavrinka and kind of split them into one, it was like being with the four Beatles. I mean, they were that good. But like in my era, my era wasn't bad in the top four or five either. You know, you have McEnroe, Connors, Borg, Vilas. The difference is, though, the depth now in the tour 
is is so much greater than in my day. I don't think the top 10 is any better now than it was in my day. It's just the depth. You know, when you get down from 80 downwards to 150, I, I, you know, as anybody will tell you these days, when you step on the court, men and women, but, and in particularly in the women's circuit, because let's face it, you could almost put, you could put a pin in the draw for the, for the whole draw, who, who's going to win the tournament. But you've got to be you've got to be on guard from the from the first Monday. In my day, the top players could maybe not always, but maybe get a little bit of a almost semi relaxing first round, and maybe even a second round. Not now. The women's tennis looks like it's getting better and better and better and better. The men's tennis yes. is 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 uh, to me at times unrecognizable. It's like a video game, but the women's tennis now is getting. It's it's getting much 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 better. The athleticism. Yeah, oh, I agree. I mean, the, the difference is it's mind boggling now. And you you go around the practice courts and watch these uh, young women play, and the the height. I mean, I I believe I'm right in saying my day the average height of the women was I think five 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 six maybe. Now I think it's five eleven. I mean, they're giants in comparison to to what it was, and they they hit the ball so much harder. Obviously, modern equipment and diet and training methods and so on and so on but it's a different it's almost a different sport now uh, uh the way they crush the ball it is just frightening to watch it really is let's move into the third set this is the portion of our show where we talk about your career you and your brothers were tennis players where does your tennis begin we were lucky that we were fortunate that my father was a tennis fanatic and he was a part-time coach and we grew up in a small town in the east coast of London, uh, of England. But you know, in comparison with today, with, with my, my fellow players that lived in, say, California and Florida, our facilities in those days were horrendous. We had no indoor courts. The nearest in courts, nor indoor courts were Queen's Club, which is about an hour and a half by train. And so for us in the winter, there were a number of weeks where it would the frost would come at night and the clay courts would, they would sort of, they would sweat and they were like soggy. So my father... And my brothers, we would get up there and we would, in those days, the, the net sticks um, had spikes on the bottom. And we would go around spiking the holes in the court and that the sweat would go through the, the uh, and it would start to melt. We'd go through the court and then hopefully within three, four hours, we might get lucky to play tennis. How did you get good? Well, I, I think I got lucky. I mean, I, I, I got lucky that my brother, David, my older brother was six years or is six years older than me. So by the time I started playing, he was already number one, two or three in the country under 12s. So that gave me something to aim at. And my father was a very dedicated man. And our home, our really our second home, was our local tennis club. And so any times we had spare, especially during the summer months when the weather was better, we would just go down all day long to the club. I, I wasn't a hard worker, but I, had, I was fortunate that I was blessed with, with talent. But John, you know, you write in your book that your dad um, had made a mistake mm -hmm. in business, that he had gone broke, that he had to sort of man up and pay significant debts off for a lot mm -hmm. of years. You talk about not being a good student and struggling in mm -hmm. school. Um, you know, it, it wasn't that smooth no. like you weren't just a talented guy that just pumped no, through well, you have to also remember Craig in those days so when I when I was 11 12 and I said okay I'm going to be a tennis player number one that's a ridiculous thing to say because the odds on it are low that you're going to make it number one and number two there wasn't any money in the game then 
it wasn't like you took up the sport thinking I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I finished. The money came in a certain amount when I was in my 20s. But until then, uh, I was, I was, you know, putting all my eggs in one basket, my education. I was lazy in school. I hated it. I wanted just to play tennis. And I was going into a sport where really the odds on me making a living out of it were not that great, really. But my dad was uh, full of encouragement and my older brother was already playing. So I was just very lucky to be in a tennis family. And fortunate, so it didn't. It didn't always go my own way, but I got. I, I was very fortunate that way. And the LTA, um, you guys were identi- You were on yes. their radar. You were identified yes. as talent, and you started traveling. So, was there ever a moment where you were like, "Oh, I could be really good"? Like, were you at the Orange Bowl, and you know, did you have a, did you have a win that sort of opened your eyes to what could be? Well, the Orange Bowl, uh, I didn't do, I think I, I can't remember how many rounds I won there, but I was with the elite there and I and I was I did okay. And I started to mix with these players. Bjorn Borg was an example, uh, Vitas Gerolitis, and these were kind of the elite players. And, you know, I was kind of in that league when I was playing with them as juniors. Um, so you know, I definitely, um, whenever we'd have, we'd have these matches where we would play against the USA in matches in England and then vice versa, and we'd play these junior tournaments in Europe called the uh, Gallia Cup, which was like the junior version of Davies Cup. And we'd play Spain and the Czech Republic. In those days, it was Czechoslovakia and so on and so on, France. And I was up there with those guys. So, I mean, I think from an age of 16, 17, I figured that, I, you know, I had a good chance to make it on the pro tour. Uh, I, so I wasn't sort of, in, you know, overawed by that prospect. I felt like I could belong in that, in that group. Do you recall the first time you ever saw Borg? Uh, well, I saw him at the Orange Bowl um, when he was, when I was, what, 16, 17. He was, well, he was two years younger. He was 14, 15. And, and I remember uh, not long after that, I was at a tournament with someone on the clay. I can't remember who it was now, one of the other players. And we were talking about Borg. And I said, look, this guy is going to be awesome on clay because he'd already beaten everybody already. But I said, with those grips, he's got no chance of winning a match on grass. So I got that one really right. But uh, yeah, I saw him pretty early on and I knew he was special. People have like a very funny memory of him, but he served volleyed on grass. He did. And, and, and the other thing about Bjorn was uh, when he came off the French Open, having won it, and you've got to remember that in those days, the difference between the French clay and the Wimbledon grass was night and day. Now it's much more of an even court surface because they've changed yeah, the grass. Yeah, it's all apples. So for yeah. him to have done to won the back-to-backs, what, three times, is an, is the, without question, it's the toughest thing to do in the men's sport, in tennis, no doubt. He did it three times. And when he came to, to England after the French, he would take a few days off, and then he would never play at all. He would practice at a club called Cumberland on the grass. They had him, and I, would, I had the honour of practising with him a few times. And he wasn't the most gifted guy. Athletically, he was the greatest athlete, in my opinion, of all time. But in terms of the way he played with the racket, he wasn't one of those gifted, unlike, say, John McEnroe. And for the first three days on the grass, he was awful. And I kept thinking to myself, why couldn't I play him right this minute? I could beat him right this minute. And, of course, gradually after days and days and days of playing six hours a day, he got it and he got it right. Whereas John McEnroe could pick up a racket after not playing for three months and it was like a magic wand in his hands. Two totally different players in terms of their talent level, but Borg was the better athlete by miles. 
what was the impetus for for turning pro was did you how does it how does it get decided then like that you're gonna be a pro player well in those days again there was when i first started there was no atp ranking so in those days what you had to do was i look back at it now and i was a terrible student you had to write letters to tournament (laughs) tournament directors because there was no computers and 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 so you would write a letter to Monte Carlo and you would say, look, my name is John Lloyd. I'm ranked number three in Britain. These are my results in the last year. And then if they wanted you, they would call you and then you, they would negotiate a price and then they paid you two or 300 bucks and you would play indoors. But I knew from an early age, I wanted to turn pro. It was my life. I'd made up my mind. My father was full of encouragement. My brother was already on the tour. So it was just a natural thing to follow. And I loved it. I loved the thought of the life of, of doing that sort of stuff. So for me, it was an early decision um, that I made and kept to it. And you talk about Wimbledon being like a significant sort of motivator, positive and negative <laughs> in the book. Right. That obviously it's the the most important tournament in the world, but also you had sort of a bird's eye view of the actual all England club. Yeah. And, and that was sort of a distasteful group. Yes. Well, that's the that's the second biggest regret of my tennis career. The first was I didn't work as hard as I should have done. The second was that I never performed well in the singles at Wimbledon. I mean, never. I had a few good wins, but never played to my ability. And I let the pressure get to me and I wimped out. It got to me, whereas the Hem- Tim Henmans and the Andy Murrays, they, they relished playing at home. I never liked it. And I grew up, not grew up there, but I went there from an early age to practice there. So I knew all about Wimbledon. In those days, there was a big elitism there. About uh, it was a real elitist club, and they didn't really want you there as a player. When you lost, they was like, you know, can you get the hell out of our lovely grounds? And I never felt comfortable there. Uh, it's it's improved a hell of a lot since then. Since they've had younger members come in, and life has changed. But Wimbledon was a love hate relationship for me. I loved it when I won the mixed doubles twice with my partner Wendy because that was very special. But I, I hated it when I played the singles there. In most cases, I didn't like the pressure. But for our, you know, for our listeners, you got to understand, you were the Tim Henman of, of the 70s or, you know, and the early 80s. You were the biggest star there was. Like, you had, you had the, the, the media all over you, and you were married to Chris Everett. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a player called Buster Mottram that no one really knows about. He, he was number one. I was number one one year, but he was number one above me most years. But Buster sort of didn't have the tennis life that I did. So I was more of a, well, this is going to sound egotistical, but I was more of a crossover star than he was because, you know, I was with Chris Everett. And before Chris, I was with a lot of, um, I used to go to a lot of nightclubs and I was with a lot of nice models and actresses and all that stuff. And I enjoyed all that stuff. I, you know, No, no, listen, man, hey. you don't, you're not bragging. I mean, I know, I remember... It was like there was Vetus got all the Vetus got all the press, you know, that he was the but you you guys had a lot of fun on, in pro tennis. There was a lot of fun in those days. And I, I think Bjorn Borg was the one that really started it to go to the extremes. <laughs> and I don't mean that because uh, he was young, too young at that stage. But the first time and I still to this day don't really know how it happened, because when you think about it, he created that amazing teeny bopper craziness on the court at Wimbledon where people thousands of hundreds of screamed. And that was before there was an internet or cell phones. And yet all of a sudden out of the blue, all of a sudden these young girls 
would follow him. And then they had to have guards for the first time taking him out to and fro the courts. And it sort of spread. And then when it got into newspapers and TV, tennis became sort of like the hip thing to do. And of course, there were a lot of very nice young ladies around that liked to follow the players. So it was happy days, to be honest. And you started, and, and and you 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 started dating Chrissy at Wimbledon. Yes, nineteen seventy eight. That sounds about right, but I'm really bad with the dates. So I hope you got that right because I, I I'm so bad with that. But that sounds about right. Yeah, I got fixed up. It was a date fixed up by a fellow player, uh, uh, Ingrid Benzer at the time, who was number one in Sweden, and she came up to me in the in the Wimbledon uh, the players' room and said. Uh, you know, get chatted a bit. And then she said, why don't you ask Chris out? And I said, well, why would I do that? And she goes, I think you should. And I said, well, why would I do that? Because I wasn't in her group and I'd met her, but never. And for the third time, finally dummy over here realized that she was setting me up. And so I went over to Chris and said, do you want to go out? And she said, yeah. And so during Wimbledon, can you imagine this? During Wimbledon, we went out to a nightclub. I took her out to a nightclub called Tramps, which was the biggest nightclub in London. During Wimbledon, I mean, <laughs> can you imagine that now? Uh, and we were there, you know, dancing and, you know, not drinking particularly, but while the tournament was going on. <laughs> and nowadays, they've got entourages around. They wouldn't even get no chance that would ever happen. So that year, she loses to Martina in the final. Right. And you thought that her her mind was wandering, thinking about going out with you. Well, I, I mean, I, I say in the book, and I don't think Martina was too happy about it when uh, when she, I don't know if she read, but someone told her uh, that I said that she kind of owes me a drink because I think I handed her a first Wimbledon title. And I don't think she saw the funny side of that. Uh, um, but <laughs> it, it was really true. Chrissy was up and, and anybody that knows Chris and followed her, I mean, after a match, when she lost a match like that, for about a week, she was miserable to be floating around with, that's for sure. And after the match, I, I went up with my best friend and I, I saw Mrs. Everett, the late Mrs. Everett, lovely Colette, lovely lady. And I said, look, I know Chris is not going to want to go out tonight. She just lost. Please give her my regards and say, well, I'll see you again soon. And she said, no, 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 no. She said she'll just give her half an hour to get ready and then she's ready to go out. And I was like, then I knew that I was semi-responsible. That uh, you know that we were going out late at night, walk going for walks in Hyde Park, so we didn't, so the paparazzi wouldn't spot us. And we were going out. She would never have done that normally, and she never did after. And she was a big, big star. Um, and you guys went public. What was it like to be, you know, essentially one of the? I mean, geez, you got to be one of the most famous couples in the world. Well, I, I, there's two things that. Number one, if you're going to marry someone as big as Chris at the time, your ego has to be fully in check. You've got to realize who you're marrying, which I did. I was lucky that I'd had a certain amount of stardom in Britain, not anything like what Chris had in the world. But in Britain, I was well known. So I was kind of used to it where, you know, people would stare at you in restaurants and so on and so on. And you, But it, and then the advantages of getting nice uh, uh, great tables in restaurants and so on. So it wasn't as a big a shock to the system as it would have been for someone who hadn't. But then next minute, you know, we're in the States and we're getting invited to parties and meeting celebrities. We're on the cover of People magazine, for heaven's sake. Um, I'm a little, I'm a fella from Leon C in Essex. And all of a sudden I was, but you also have to put your ego in check and realize that in most circles, you're kind of Mr. Everett. And, and, you know, and I accepted that. I understood that. I and mean, it was just, that was, uh, 
a part of me. I wanted to support her, and I knew that she was obviously the main focal point. And and it was okay for a while, but but in the end, it dragged me down. To be honest, you know. So tell me the truth. Did did the Alessa the Alessa you wore? Were you riding the coattails of her deal? Of course. Of, of they course. say, hey, listen, you got to be in Alessa too. We're going to pay you and blah blah blah. Uh, well, I mean, it was a part. I think the our agent at the time went in there and just said, "Look, it's a double deal." Well, obviously, you know, they wouldn't have been rushing out uh, to get me on their own. I mean, I, I, it wasn't like I wasn't known and I was, a, you know, a good player. But you're talking, she was a great player, and obviously, uh, I'm not sure exactly how our agent did it. He probably bribed them or whatever. Basically, said, "Look, if you want Chris, you have you get you have to get John." I don't know what he said. I didn't listen to it. I was happy because I loved their clothes, and obviously the, the the money wasn't too bad either. What was the most interesting thing you observed uh, being with Chrissy when she was, you know, really the best player in the world? Well, uh, if you're talking about at a professional level, um, the most interesting thing to me was to see and be around greatness and to see what goes in goes through their mind. And I realized with just a few instances that that's the difference between her and me at my level, because I wouldn't have, I, I just didn't have that capacity in me to do some of the things that she did to get to greatness. And I, I mean, you know, I'm talking about practicing and, and the dedication and the willingness to, to do whatever it takes to win. Uh, that to me, it just wasn't the be all and end all of life. And I, these great players, they have that something special. I believe that you're born with it, to be honest. I think you can improve your work ethic, but I think they, they've got something special. And I, I've always believed that Chrissy, Borg, Connors, all these greats in my era, they could have been great, great in other sports if they wanted to be because they've got that something that drives them on that the normal human being just doesn't have. And I don't think you can coach that. Yeah, and Chrissy seemed like she was pretty cool. Um, did you guys have fun on tour, or was it um, what was it like being on tour with her? No, I mean we had to, we had some good time. I mean it was actually quite funny in some ways because when I was traveling to with at her tournaments in those days, there weren't that many tournaments where the men and women played together. Obviously, other than slams. Um, so when I was there, not many of the top women in those days were married, um, and so. But I became sort of part of the family, so to speak. So I'd be in the in their kind of not their locker rooms per se, where they were changing, but in those areas. And I was the only guy. So and after a while, they tend to forget you're there because you're part of the furniture, so to speak. So I was listening to many cat fights and stuff going on. It was great. I wish I'd had in those days a recorder because <laughs> I could have come up with some classics over the years that I heard going on. It was great. So I. I got privy to some great stories and stuff going on that, that anybody else, if I'd have told all my stories, I would have been, I would have had to have uh, got, had a secret identity because I would have had hitmen after me. You yeah, man, you were in the locker room. Now, um, you you write in your book that um, Chrissy and Martino were were not friendly. That they that you tell a great story about how they did a they did an EXO tour and. Chrissy blew out Martina night one. And then the next night yeah. Martina blew out Chrissy yeah. and everyone was getting all the ticket all the ticket uh, people that bought tickets. were not getting a good show. No, <laughs> no. Well, 
in those days, I played a few of those exhibitions, but I was the undercard to the main guys. And the guys knew about it. You would talk about it before. I mean, sorry for all those people that came to exhibitions if they thought it was 100% serious, because it isn't. I mean, you, you work hard, but whoever lost the first set would normally win the second, and then you'd play out a third. And so people would get at least two hours of entertainment. And Chrissy, right? You tank you, you, whoever wins the first set, you tank Lucy, the second, and yeah. then you play the third hard. Right. I mean, you don't make it obvious. A, 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 a normal person wouldn't see the difference. You just miss a few balls, serve a double fault, and, a, and so on, and no one would know. But uh, the women, uh, the Chrissy, and and they tend to forget that memo, and uh, they don't talk to each other, so they just go out and try and kill each other like it's a real match. You say that Chrissy. You you asked her. You told her, Chrissy, what are you doing? You got to put on a better show. Yeah, and she said, "Well, that's I can't lose my advantage." Right, right. <laughs> well, after the match, when she finished it in about forty five minutes, and people were still getting their popcorn at the time, and the match was over, and I came in and said, well, "You know, basically, what the hell are you doing?" And she said, "Well, what do you want me to do?" I said, "Well, you talk about it, and you play two good sets, and then play out a third. And she's like, "Well, psychologically, you can't do that. I, you, I can't have Martina have an advantage. I go, it's an exhibition." And then you talk about it, and then the next exhibition, you reverse it and let Martina win. It's not a big deal. This is an exile. But she didn't get it, and Martina was mad at her. And the next week they played her a few days later, and Martina beat her in about five minutes, six love, six three. And people are watching this, and they're coming, geez, they haven't even parked their car, and the match is over. Are, are you um, – I know you say that you, you see Chrissy – I mean, you guys were babies when you got married. Too young. I mean, Too young. Too young. Too young. Too young. 24 years old to be on the tennis tour when you're traveling away from each other. Bad mix. Bad mix. And you even say that if you had maybe gotten married 10 years later, you could have maybe had a shot. I agree. That you got along well, that it was a nice relationship. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of good things about being married to someone in your own profession, I believe. Because, you know, one of the things that for when you get involved with someone else, if they're not tennis pros or, or a professional sports person, they don't know things what to say and what not to say at, at times before matches and afterwards. I know it sounds like a small thing, but it, it's it, it's an important psyche of players knowing, you know, when you go through these down periods and you're preparing for a match, those kind of moments are sort of quite important. And when you've got someone who doesn't know anything about the sport, they just quite often say the wrong things and they don't know, they don't say the right things at the right time. And, and when you've got someone in your own profession, they get the fact that, you know, when you go to Paris for the French Open and you win a match on the Monday, on the Tuesday, you're not going to spend the day sightseeing. You know, if you're married to a fellow pro, they know that that day you're going to hit balls for an hour and a half and then you're going to rest up. You know, they don't get it. You, when, I, when I was, you know, not married and I went with girlfriends there, they were like, hey, we're in attack, we're in Rome. Well, okay, but my job is to be at the hotel and the tennis courts and maybe a restaurant or two. That's it. But they didn't get it. But you're married to a fellow pro. They know what makes you tick. And I think in that way, it makes it a little bit better. But it's it's just that the traveling apart is not healthy. Man, you know, it's it's it, you know, it is true that there's nothing worse than being on a business trip with someone that doesn't understand you're on a business trip. Correct. Exactly right. They just don't yeah. they don't get it. Yeah. You know. Um you you guys you guys get divorced after I think it was a long sort of separation because you're Catholic. I'm not. So she you is. kind of. I'm not. She. she sorry, she was Catholic, yeah. and you you put off the the divorce. But um, did you thrive afterwards, or were you kind of shook? 
Well, it had been quite a long way, uh, quite a long time coming. And to be honest, both of us, when we were separated at the end of the separation, we were we both had relationships. Then uh, she was we was dating right. Andy Mill, and I was dating my second wife Deborah. So the the the, the transition wasn't that difficult, to tell you the truth, because we just went into the next the next sort of. There wasn't really much downtime before we were with in another relationship again. Your best moment on uh, in uh, in pro tennis? Well, I, I always get asked that. I, I, I think, and it's going to be corny. I talk about it in the book, but I don't care if it's corny. Uh, I, I think, really, when I look back at it, it was winning the mixed doubles at Wimbledon and and being up in the royal box where they present you the trophy, unlike the others where you're on the court, and looking down at my parents in the players' box and knowing that the sacrifice they'd made over the years, where uh, we had no money and all of our holiday money uh, was spent on my brothers and I going to tournaments that they hadn't had a holiday for years and looking at their reaction to sort of almost like, you know what, you know, a little bit of it was maybe it was worth it, you know, uh, to my father and my mother because they would have done it. They would have loved it anyway. But for me, it was like that recognition to know that I'd sort of given them something back that they were proud of. So I, I think that would have to be my most special moment. What was it like finaling uh, the Australian Open? Well, that was a great experience as well. But you've got to remember, and, and I've always been very honest about it, and I will be to the day I die when people talk about it, the Australian Open in those days was not the Australian Open it is now or 10 years after the fact that I did it. Because in those days, the Australian Open started on the 26th of December, the day after Christmas. Now, for me, I'm an English guy. I loved it. I mean, would you rather spend... <laughs> A month in, in December in England, I don't, you know, okay, people say, yeah, but don't you miss the snow? No, I don't miss that at all. And for me to get a chance to tour in Australia for six weeks in those beautiful places in the summer leading up to the Australian Open in Melbourne, I'm on the first plane over there. Don't you worry about that. You play Vetus in the final. Yeah. You lost in five, and then he explains in his in his speech after well, that he I, was it, cramping it was up once because I'd had cramps myself. Yeah, he started cramping. Oh, it was obvious after we came back after the had a ten minute break, and I'd won the third set beating him fair and square anyway. And then during that period, that ten minute period, we were in different locker rooms. He was in the main locker room, and I was in the the B locker room because I refused to to change over once I got the quarters because of superstition. And he was writhing around the gym, the uh, the locker room with cramp. Of course, I didn't see that. So when I came back into the fourth, I realized it pretty soon on because he was cramping when he was going up for overheads. So I changed my game and started hitting shorter and lobbing. And, and I and won the fourth set. And I thought, God, I've got this match. And then he managed to kind of get rid of the cramp with rubbing his leg and having the trainer coming on. And uh, he took an early break and I panicked a bit and never got it back. So it was a match that I should have really run, won. But I always say that if there was anybody I would have liked to have lost to, uh, he would have been the guy because um, he was he was a fabulous, a, fa a fabulous friend, and I liked him a lot and had a lot of respect for him. And um, but anyway, it was a match I should have won. Now, were you a Studio Fifty Four guy? Were you well, one of these I, guys? I with did him go with him a few club? times there, and he was. It was an amazing thing because I. It was like when I when we drove up there, he used to have his yellow convertible uh, Corniche, uh, uh, Rolls Royce Corniche, uh, and we'd go up there, and there'd be a queue. I thought it was like Wimbledon when they had that big queue out there, and he'd walk right to the front. And Vetus was 
one of the men, one of the men there, they loved him because he spent money and we went straight through. And I was like, Vetus, I go, I mean, are there a few ladies around? He goes, well, who would you like to go with? I'm like, well, how about the whole dance floor? And he goes, well, don't be greedy. I said, oh, okay. And then he would fix me up with someone and we'd, you know, dance and all that stuff. And, and then I remember coming out of him, coming out of that place about 5.30 in the morning, driving back to his house on Long Island and we were in the convertible and it was just, he had his long, long hair in the wind and stuff and these two beautiful ladies at the, at the traffic light, there was no one there. It was 5.30 in the morning. Peter's, how are you doing? And he goes, hey, how are you guys doing? You know, and then, and then we just drove off, you know, and I was thinking, wow, life is good. Life is good. But, yeah, it was I didn't go there very often, but, uh, but he went there a lot. <laughs> Your brother did something very special in tennis. Your brother, David. Um, and, you know, were you on the periphery of 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 the creation of the David Lloyd clubs for our listeners uh John's brother has the distinction of really creating indoor tennis and the the health club uh in 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 England or is it in London yes. do I have it right it's London or was it all no, over no no well no it's England and some and and some of the other countries in Europe have now got his name it's called David Lloyd Leisure and and a lot of times, if you see London cabs, you'll see that they're advertising on the on the uh, on the car. And and he when he started, there were no indoor clubs in England really, other than Queens and a few others. And he had this idea that we all thought he was completely off his head that it could work if it was done the right way. <laughs> and I was I was on the road playing with Chris. I had plenty of money, and he said to me, "Do you want to invest?" And I said, "Whatever you want, Dave. I had plenty of money, but." He was, I think, nervous that it was going to be a success. So I put a small amount in. And if I'd have put in £150,000, which I could have afforded easily, when he went public, I would have made close to $10 million. So most mornings in the morning, I wake up and go straight to the nearest wall and bang my head against the wall for being so stupid. But, um, no, I had nothing to do with it. It was his brainchild. Uh, he was... Uh, he was a smart guy, he still is, and he, he revolutionized British tennis. And the worst part of it, Craig, is that he still hasn't been uh, uh, mentioned or got an honor in Britain. It's the biggest travesty. Uh, there, there are these honors, uh, the, the ultimate being a sir, but the other two are the MBE, member of the British Empire, and OBE, order of the British Empire. Very prestigious. It gets put on your uh, your headings on any time you go to a party, you go to see what well, would have been the queen, but now it's the king, and you get... You know, blah blah blah, and then very special. And for him not to have been given one is the biggest joke of all time. Because apart from him being a very good tennis player in his own mind, he was Davis Cup captain, and then went on to revolutionise British tennis. And he had, still hasn't got an honour, and he probably never will get one because his face didn't fit, and that's the reason why. And it's an absolute joke that he has. John Lloyd on the Tao of Johnny Mac. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I just say it and you say what comes in your mind. We go quick, okay? Okay. Favorite tournament? Palm Springs, Indian Wells. Your favorite city? Melbourne. Best player party there ever was? Uh, Alan King, Caesar's Palace uh, party. Thought you were going to say Borstad. 
Well, oh well, well, that was that was great too. Yes, you're right. Double, <laughs> okay, multiple winners. Uh, your favorite player growing up, Lou Hode. Your favorite player now, Roger Federer. And how about women? Is there a woman you like to watch play now? Actually, any any time. Was there ever? Did you ever enjoy? Yeah. Oh my gosh! Well, there's so many, but I, I would put. I mean, recently, Ash Barty. Medical timeouts. Wrong. Best doubles player you ever played with? John McEnroe. Best doubles player you ever played against? John McEnroe. Sue Barker. Lovely. Jim Lampley. Great guy. Your favorite Roger Federer moment? Uh, uh, Roger, there <laughs> been so many. Um, uh, I'd have to say the, the the match point when he just ret- retired at the Labor Cup. What are your feelings about pickleball, this professional pickleball we're hearing about? Hate it. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket, without any aggravation, what might it be? Uh, in, in the slams, I would uh, change the men from best of five to best of three. Why? Because I think uh, I think the physicality of the players these days, uh, I think five sets is uh, is outdated. I don't think the I, I don't think that the vast majority of people want it. Uh, I think they we need to cater for maximum of three hour matches, not four and a half and five hours. I don't think people's uh, uh, concentration is there with the youth uh, and if we're trying to to keep this sport growing uh, you've got to get a captive audience and I think five hour tennis matches four to five hour tennis matches is way too long um, I, I did and, and plus the recovery for players I think the physicality is too much these days and I think the tennis would be better if it was best of three sets people say yeah but there wouldn't be any drama of course there would the drama would be at the end of the third set. It's only conditioned to be five sets. The Masters Series, best of three. If you put them into Wimbledon, it would still be the same thing. John Lloyd, uh, one of the one of the uh, quote unquote old timers. Now you're not an old timer to me because I grew up. I remember you, <laughs> but you're like you're one of the only guys we've ever heard actually from your era support. A truncated major that getting getting away from the five set matches, right? Well, I well because I I see it on Facebook. I get into arguments with some of my ex ex pros on Facebook, but unfortunately, much as I love them, they're living in the old days. They talk about yeah, but you know you lose the physicality of eighteen, sixteen, the fifth. But I keep trying to tell them our sport and the sport now is a different league. Our rallies were three to four shots on most surfaces. Now they're 20, 15, 20 rallies every time. The physicality, you can't compare the two eras. They were great in their time. But, you know, three sets is ample. It's absolutely ample now at this level. Five sets is too long. John Lloyd, this was a pleasure. I, uh, you know, I enjoyed the book immensely. And, um, you know, I feel like we could probably talk for another multiple hours. I hope I see you down the road. Thank you. Wonderful seeing you. Thank you very much. Uh, happy New Year. And you are released. Huge thank you to John Lloyd. Thank you to Diodora. 
See them at Deodora.com and be on the lookout as there will be more to come. Megan Fernandez edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.